It's been said that the reason God gave us two ears and one mouth is that we might listen twice as much as we speak. Without question, the wisdom of this adage becomes clear with our reading this morning from Leviticus chapter 24. Once again, and it's not always the case in the book of Leviticus, we encounter a story, a narrative sandwiched between all of these laws that we've been looking at, these laws known as the holiness code. And this is not by accident. It's not perchance that we find this story right in the midst of these, these laws that we're looking at because all of the ethics that are being spelled out in the latter half of Leviticus arise out of real-life, day-to-day situations. When, as we've talked about over these last few weeks, when we engage the spirit of the law rather than find ourselves hung up by the letter of the law, we understand that principle and practice shape each other. They converse with each other. They reflect upon each other. As we've repeatedly learned in Leviticus, as we've been in the latter half of this book, holiness, which is one of the centerpieces of the Bible, but of this book, holiness is not an abstract concept. It's not a fanciful ideal. Holiness is not something we can achieve or earn. Holiness is a relational consequence of living in and out of dependence upon our Father. Now, if you have been internalizing that by that same logic, that which is unholy results when we live independently of God, when we choose to go our own way. And this brings us to today's reading from Leviticus. I want to ask one of our elders, Debbie Graves, to come forward to read to us. And as she does, I want to prepare you for an unsettling story that, while disturbing, reminds us that words have power. Words have power, especially when we invoke the name of the Lord. Good morning. So we're going to be in Leviticus 24, 10 to 23, which is on page 87 of your pew Bible. Now the son of an Israelite mother an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Debri the Danite. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native-born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. 
You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Two men get into an argument. A man from a mixed marriage, as we heard, his father was an Egyptian, his mother was an Israelite, gets into a scuffle with a pedigreed Israelite. We're not told who started the fight. We're not told who won. All we know is that things escalated between them. Harsh words were uttered until eventually there was an exchange of blows. Then it happened. In the heat of their conflict, the half-Israelite goes for the jugular of his opponent in a verbal sense. This biracial man invokes the name of the Lord. And his motivation for doing so is clearly not out of respect or humility. It's not as if he's calling out God's name in an effort to seek the Lord's will in the matter. No, as we heard, this man lets loose a cuss word with God's name in it. And it's a vicious attack, too. If you have your Bible open still to Leviticus 24, you'll notice in verse 11 the combination of the words blaspheme and curse right next to each other, indicating just how ruthless this man was with the Lord's name. The word used here for blaspheme means to hollow out, to pierce, to puncture. It carries with it the idea of reviling with the intent to destroy. It is, in fact, a term of warfare. In this case, it is a declaration of war against God. The word for cursed here carries the connotation of diminishing, treating lightly, or treating with contempt. In the cultural world of Leviticus, much more so than today, one's name was intimately connected with one's character, with one's person, with who you were. So this man's outward expression of contempt towards the Lord was, in effect, to say, Yahweh, and let everyone around me hear it. You mean nothing to me. And while this unnamed man of mixed parentage may have said what he said out loud publicly in order to gain the upper hand, to render his Israelite opponent powerless, and therefore once and for all to win the contest, as he drags God's name through the mud, the one who he's really attacking is the Lord. And as we quickly learn, as Debbie read for us this morning, this proves to be a deadly tactical error. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Now, there's no question about the fact that what this foul-mouthed man has done is forbidden. The prohibition is clearly stated in the Ten Commandments. What just happened is a violation of commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But, I don't know if you noticed this in the reading or looking at it this morning, it appears as if this is the first violation of this law because there are some questions as to what should happen next. Although blasphemy was prohibited by law, it was not clear, apparently, who would carry out the sentence, what the punishment, in fact, would be, and how it would be carried out. Added to this is the question of context. 
since the guilty party was not a full-blooded Israelite, did the law apply to him in the same way that it would with someone who was pure, 100% Israelite? Talk like this, you know, after all, might not be all that surprising from a foreigner. What we have here is a situation that's not all that different in our own modern times. What happens in law enforcement today? When a law is passed, a judicial ruling is required to clarify the interpretation and application of that law. When Congress passes a law, the courts, by means of specific decisions, spell out the interpretation and application of that law. And so Moses waits for the Lord to pronounce sentence. And subsequently, the Lord, as we heard, defends his name with the severest punishment. Death by stoning. A penalty you also will notice that was to be enforced by the community at large, by all the witnesses of the crime. And I want to stop here for a moment because there's a tragic irony, a tragic irony in this that I want us to see, I want us to sit in for just a second. And that tragic irony is this, the name invoked in the curse is the same name who pronounces the punishment. In other words, the name used by the man as a source of authority in his curse became unto him a curse by the authority of that same name. In other words, to make it even more simple, the irony is the cursor becomes the cursed. And seemingly this case law establishes the timeless precedent for all future generations. Here endeth the lesson. My God, my God, why are we reading this story in church? If you're new with us this morning, you're probably not coming back next week. <laughs> this may be the reason why you don't go to church in the first place. But it would be dishonest to not wrestle with what is right here in Scripture. Beloved, can we be honest this morning, whether we're new, whether we've been coming to grace for a long, long time, can we be honest and admit that this is a really disturbing story? It's particularly troubling, and maybe I'm only going to be able to speak for myself, it's particularly troubling because we can all relate to this guy. I don't know about you, but I've been there. We've all been there, I think. You know, after a long and trying day, or maybe that moment when you find yourself at the end of your rope, or sometimes just in the heat of the moment, something snaps and we let it all out. And most of what comes flying out of our mouths isn't all that respectful or gracious. It generally tends to be pretty crass and crude. And for some strange reason, when we're really fired up, we can't help but attach God's name to it. I mean, we struggle to talk about Jesus in our daily lives, right? But most of us have no problem throwing his name around when we get really annoyed or frustrated. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, talk like that would get my mouth washed out with soap. Anybody? The object lesson was to clean up the way that you talk. When we were growing up, saying a cuss word with God's name in it got you grounded. But here in Leviticus, a little blasphemy, a little cursing, and the ground gets you. This is one of those stories where I'm really glad there's a New Testament. <laughs> but even still, even still, it's a hard passage. So radically different from the story where Jesus cautions those who are eager to stone an adulterous woman that when he tells them they best check their own records before throwing any rocks. 
What's the difference between the two stories? Mercy on the one hand and a death sentence on the other. And the answer is in Leviticus 24 in verses 17 through 22, if you still have it open. These five verses are known as the lex talanus, the law of retaliation. You know it as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's this metaphorical way of saying that punishment, the punishment must fit the crime. That justice must be proportional. And let me tell you, back in the time when this was written, this was a radical judicial concept. But as I try to lead you astray on that, you're sharp and you're saying, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, time out. If an eye for an eye still applies, if that's what you're pointing to, then why does Jesus, again, back in the New Testament, argue the opposite? Why does Jesus say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. What's that about? What we need to understand when Jesus says that during the Sermon on the Mount is that what Jesus is repudiating is not proportionate justice, but vigilante justice. The wrong of taking the law into your own hands. And this is the very thing in that story that we know with Jesus. This is the very thing that the people with the rocks in their hands tried to do with that adulterous woman. And Jesus' words to the crowd reveal the meaning behind his command not to retaliate against an evil person. What he says is in essence that the truth is our hearts and our hurts deceive us. We can't do justice justly as individuals because the injustice we suffer blinds us to the injustice we inflict. And that's why Paul will later write, to build upon what Jesus says in that story, Paul will later write, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's not a discontinuity through this law in Leviticus 24 and as Jesus expounds upon it, God is teaching his people that the punishment was never to exceed what was deserved as revenge often dictates. And the law was also demonstrating that punishment should not fall short from what's deserved as indulgence often does. Okay, but if you're with me, you're asking yourself, uh, why then does the blasphemer lose his life? Shouldn't the punishment have been curse for curse? Should not God have simply bad-mouthed the blasphemer back? And being that it was God, I bet he could have put a doozy on him. <laughs> but here's the thing. Again, if you have Leviticus 24 open. Here's the thing, and it seems, even when you heard it read, it may have seemed odd, but it's there intentionally. If you look down at Leviticus 24, you'll notice that in Leviticus, God places blasphemy alongside murder. Look at verse 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death, and then seemingly that should be the end or the explanation, but right after in verse 17, God adds, anyone who kills a human being shall be put to death. They don't seem like they relate, but here's the point. God puts showing contempt for his name on a par with murder. In other words, to curse another person is to kill that person. To invoke what being cursed by God results in, which is death. Beloved, the blasphemer in Leviticus didn't just say a curse word, he cursed God. And if we're still trying to find some sanctuary in the New Testament, and Lord knows I want to find it with you, 
I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them. Or maybe you've conveniently forgot about them. In the book of Acts, this couple cheats the Christian community in a real estate deal. And then they lie about it. And Peter confronts them. I'm quoting Peter directly here when he says, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to people, but to God. And then, very succinctly, very concisely, we are told in that story in the book of Acts that Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Beloved, the punishment of the lie has to do with whom you lie to. The best analogy, perhaps, of, in our day of this danger of speaking contemptuously might be the crime of perjury. I mean, it's one thing to lie to your family and your friends or maybe even to lie to the media, but if you lie in front of a judge or before Congress, it is a far different and more serious matter. And in some respects, it actually applies here. It's very, very similar because if you think about it, when you lie under oath, you lie to God because you took that oath in God's name. Wow. No wonder Jesus said, Simply, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and realize that anything more comes from the devil. Beloved, our words have power. When we misspoke as children, when we cussed and later stood there for five minutes with a bar of ivory soap between our lips, grinding on our teeth, not that I have any baggage from my childhood, <laughs> I still can't use ivory soap. There was a point for us to grasp in that moment besides cleaning up how we talk. What, were, what we were being taught is that when our words are offensive, damage is done. Throughout the scriptures, we're enjoined, we're commanded to worship in, through our worship to bless the Lord. That was part of our, our, our songs this morning, our call to worship, this idea that Scripture repeats again and again. Bless the Lord. Have you ever stopped to think about this command? It's, doesn't it strike you as a little odd? I mean, after all, how can one of us, can any of us, all of us, bestow blessing on the one who is the source of all blessing? And yet, without answering that question, the fact that it is a continued encouragement, command of Scripture, the very fact that we can seemingly bless the Lord ought to lead us to see, if nothing else, that cursing God is equally possible and therefore just as powerful. And beloved, if our words have an effect on our Father, then the power of what we say to injure each other is exponential. The point being that when we curse, there are consequences. Not just to God, but to others. Scripture is clear that as humans, we are God's image bearers. Each one of us reflects the person of God. Therefore, when we diss or curse each other, we are calling down death and destruction, separation from God upon each other. In other words, when we play fast and loose with God's name, we are shattering the walking and talking mirrors that we are. Turning again to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it this way. 
You have heard that it was said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who insults his brother is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, and that English translation is putting it way more nicer than Jesus said it. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So as we grasp to our last straw of hope that we can ignore the Old Testament and just stick with the new, both are saying to us, to curse is to kill. In Leviticus, curse God and get stoned. In the Sermon on the Mount, curse anybody and you risk burning in hell. Woe. The tongue is a fire, James later writes in his letter in the New Testament. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Beloved, watch your mouth. Because our words have power, especially when we invoke the name of God. But let's be clear here. Let's be clear here because at this point you still may be going to a very, very familiar place. You may be hearing as I talk about blasphemy and cursing what we typically tend to hear in the Christian community that this is just about avoiding the seven dirty words or the very specific names of God. And if that's what you're taking away, if that's all you're doing is you're writing down, do not say these words. These words are on the banned list. Then once again, what we're, we're experiencing, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, what we're doing, if that's where we are right now, is we're engaging in the letter of the law and we're missing the spirit of the law. Because what's at stake, where the danger lies, is not in specific words, whether it's names for God or whether it's you know, dirty words that your mom said you're never allowed to say. What's at stake, where the danger lies, is the defamation of Jesus' person and reputation. It's the misrepresentation of our Father's character and purposes. That's the point. I don't know if we've ever thought about it this, before, this way before, but as God's image bearers, as followers of Jesus, we are ambassadors for our Lord. We are stand-ins. How we conduct ourselves, how we speak of God and for God represents who Jesus is and what our Father is like. When we speak falsely of God's character and purposes, we misrepresent who God is. We worship and present a false God, not the true God of the Bible. When we defame the person of Jesus Christ, we reject his authority and we become a stumbling block for others to truly know and to receive him as their Lord and Savior. That's what's at stake. It's not about the word. It's about what's behind the word, who's being represented by the words that we use. That's the power that we have. Now, whenever you preach on this topic, the word blasphemy is in the sermon title or in the, the context. Everyone who really knows their Bible always goes to this one place. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Others don't. They go to this one place because there's always one question we talk about blasphemy. And that's the, this moment when Jesus says, there's one type of blasphemy that will not be forgiven. 
And if you're not familiar with this, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So let's go there briefly. What I want to suggest this morning, if you're familiar with this passage, and if you're not, you can find it in Matthew 12. What I want to suggest this morning is that we read what Jesus says very, very carefully and in context. Because, again, we're going right back to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. If all we take away from this one verse that we pull out of context is that, okay, here's all the sins that can be forgiven. Here's the list. But here's the one sin. The one exception in a checklist of otherwise forgivable sins. We're missing the point. So let's appreciate the larger point that Jesus is trying to make here in Matthew 12. The reason why Jesus declares in the midst of confronting the Pharisees that blaspheming or cursing the Holy Spirit is impossible to forgive is because it is the Holy Spirit who justifies us. The Holy Spirit prompts us. The Holy Spirit stirs us. The Holy Spirit gives us faith in Jesus through whom alone comes not only forgiveness of sins but new life. In other words, the gift of grace, the gift of salvation needs to be received. It's not forced upon us. So if we ignore or reject or forsake the Holy Spirit, if you're tracking with me, forgiveness is impossible, not because our Father won't give it to us, but because we have closed ourselves off from it. Now to back up my interpretation of this verse for you, I want you to consider the example of Peter. We all remember that Peter denied Christ three times. Now what you may not remember is the third time he denied Jesus, that final time he wanted to be sort of emphatic about it. And so as he denied Jesus the third time publicly, he threw down a few choice words. He cursed and blasphemed Christ. And you can imagine that moment. As his heart was pounding from conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because he knew the truth about Jesus. You can imagine in that moment, as his heart was pounding, the Holy Spirit working upon him, and Peter blasphemes the Holy Spirit as he betrays Christ. And let me only add to this, just to make it even richer. Remember, unlike most of us, Peter was warned in advance that he was going to do this. This wasn't some impulsive thing that just happened. Peter was specifically told, you are going to deny me three times. So it add now in that moment, Holy Spirit pounding upon him. He knows the truth of Christ, but he's also got the words of Jesus in his head. This is what's going to happen. And in that moment, Peter purposefully, willfully denies Christ. He curses aloud and blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. He cuts himself off from forgiveness. And he's a dead man. No more dead, no less dead than Judas, other than that he didn't take his own life. But he's a dead man in that moment. And that's why we hear after that third denial where he curses out loud, he runs off into the darkness weeping. But that's not the end of the story. You know that. That's not the end of the story. Because later on, after the resurrection, Peter encounters Jesus again. And once again in encountering Jesus, he encounters the Holy Spirit prompting him. There's this burning in his heart that is as much on, as much on fire as the fire that's between he and Jesus by the side of the water. And in that conversation, in that moment recorded in the Gospel of John, where three times Jesus asks him, Peter is forgiven. He is reconciled to Christ. Beloved, our words about Jesus either justify or condemn us. 
With our words, we confess that Jesus is Lord and we are saved. Our words spring forth from what we believe in our heart in response to the Holy Spirit. Those that believe and confess the name of Jesus have faith in him. Salvation is dependent upon our confession of Jesus as Lord, responding to the Holy Spirit. Beloved, our words have power. And they have power because our words shape our perception of reality. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but just as God, our Father, speaks in order to create. That's how God creates. God creates by speaking. If God speaks it, it exists. That's what we see in the beginning. That's, through, that's everything. God speaks and he creates. And as reflections of him, don't know if you've ever made this connection, the words we use, the way we talk, shapes our perception of reality, of how things are, of who we are of what is possible. And I want to give you a negative example of that. I feel like these next four years, well, are going to be like therapy because my kids are in high school and I'm going to be unloading with you things that are going on. <laughs> my son's a freshman at Huntington, you know that. Um, what you may or may not know is he's playing football uh, for the first time. He's never played before and he's playing quite well. Uh, it's been an adjustment, hard practices. Hot weather, I mean, pushed in a way he's never been pushed before. But the hardest thing that my son has had to face, and he's not alone in this, the hardest thing has not been the practices, it's not been the games, it's not been the heat, it's not been the expectations of performance. The hardest thing that my son has had to face that he's confessed to me is the way not only that the players around him, but specifically the coaches that coach him talk. They curse like sailors. They drop words that he's not used to hearing at all, let alone in like a machine gun format in a single sentence. <laughs> and more specifically, what's really been hard for him, for us together, is even beyond the cursing, it's been having to deal with how the players on his team talk about women. And the coaches may not speak the same way. God forbid they'd get fired. But they're there. They hear it. And as a father, forget as a pastor, I just want to pull these, these boys aside. I want to pull their parents aside. I want to pull the coaches aside in the midst of this. And I want to say, really, are we really okay with this? I mean, would any of us want our daughters, our sisters, or our wives talked about like that? Do we not see the connection between talking like that and treating women like that? And my daughter's a junior, and she's been going there for a couple of years, and so this isn't just a football thing. I've, you know, I've interacted with her friends, and it's not just her community of friends are just there. I'm just being on the Huntington Beach campus, being in the high school campus. A disturbing thing more and more coming to my attention is as I'm amongst high school girls, more and more high school girls who are referring to themselves by the B word and by the S word. Not other people calling them that, them calling themselves that. And in the midst of those moments where I hear it, where all of a sudden my ears perk up and I look up in shock, laughter. But it's not funny. And if you're here today and you're someone who's in that environment, I'm here to tell you, not just as a dad, but now as a pastor, it's not funny. There's no bonding in that kind of talk. There's no real sisterhood being formed. 
It dishonors God and it offends your father because you're disrespecting yourself. And you know what? That kind of talk isn't just at Huntington High. It's not just at high school. Let's be honest. Let's be serious. This kind of talk is everywhere. It's in all sports. It's in every locker room and garage. It's out on the street. It's in the office. It's in the grocery store. We are hearing it all the time. And yet, in the midst of me sharing what I'm engaging with my son, what I'm engaging in my own perceptions as an adult, can I tell you repeatedly what's been reflected back to me, not by people outside the church, but by people inside the church, people walking and following Christ like you and me. Whether it's football or a high school campus, I've been told, well, that's just how it is. Well, you're going to play sports. That's what sports is. That's, you know, that's where kids are today. That's just the way the world is. Beloved, I want to underscore again, and I'm saying this in an inspirational way, I want to underscore again, blasphemy isn't just when we clumsily or crudely tag God's name onto whatever we say. Blasphemy is whenever we speak poorly, crassly, disrespectfully, and falsely about anything that is connected to our Father, especially those whom he calls his children. My brothers and sisters in Christ... We are raising men and women with a hard and cynical way of not only speaking about the world, but of seeing the world. And the thing is, this morning, maybe, maybe this wasn't your reaction, maybe it was, we get all hot and bothered when we read Leviticus 24. We get all hot and bothered that our Lord would sentence a person to death by stoning for some bad language. And yet we're launching even bigger rocks at each other every day in our daily lives. They may not be physical stones, but the impact of words, racial and ethnic slurs, sexual harassment, salacious gossip, cyberbullying, and hate speech are just as deadly and therefore just as damning. We don't have to be holier than thou. I think I can speak for Ethan in talking with him that that's one of his biggest struggles is he's, he's aware of the perception that Christians come across as hypocrites, holier than thou. We don't have to be holier than thou, but we can speak up. We can speak not in a way that separates us from other people, not in the way that passes judgment on other people, but we can choose to speak differently so as to change the nature of the conversation that we're having, the kind of words that we're using. We can build up instead of tear down. We can love rather than lust. We can affirm and protect rather than to objectify and dehumanize each other. We can speak up. We don't have to just accept it. We can and we need to choose to speak differently. Beloved, living a life of worship, that's what this whole series has been about, is how does Leviticus teach us to live a life of worship? Not just about Sunday, but living it out. And right here, right now, living a life of worship means speaking the truth in love. Think of that scriptural principle in terms of what we're talking about this morning. Speaking the truth about who we are in God's eyes, as God's children, who God is, and speaking it in love. So I ask you this morning, it's where we have to go when we hear this story, we have to go when we confront this reality. For each one of us, I ask us, how are we talking to each other? How do we speak about God? What is the pattern of our speech, of our conversations when we're at home, 
when we're on the road, when we're in the car, when we're at work, when we're out socially with others. God forbid that I challenge you to actually record yourself. Are our words hard and coarse? Are our words bitter and angry? Are our words sharp and biting? Are we tearing down ideas, tearing down possibilities, tearing down groups, tearing down individual people? Or are we building them up, giving them life and enthusiasm and encouragement? Are we honoring and respectful when we talk? Or are we rude and dismissive? Are we grateful when we speak? Or are we complaining? Do we stick labels on people? Or do we listen? Are we willing to listen and learn about the uniqueness and beauty of each person that comes before us? Listen and understand, Jesus said. Listen and understand. It is not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but it is what comes out of your mouth that defiles Part of what Jesus was getting at here is that what we say serves as a reliable thermometer for what's going on inside of us. Beloved, what's going on inside of you? Watch your mouth and you'll see the spiritual temperature of your soul. And if anyone had justification to curse, if anyone had the right, the excuse to call down hell upon anyone. It was Jesus as he hung on that cross. And yet in the midst of all that pain and suffering, in the midst of everything that led up to that moment on that cross, in the thick of all his frustration and despair, in the heat and in the bile of people who were on the ground cursing him, shaking their fists, spitting upon him. Jesus didn't extend a word of blasphemy. He again and again, as he did before he went to the cross, he extended words of love. The most disturbing, the most unsettling in a good way being, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Watch your mouth. And you'll see the spiritual temperature of your soul. But beloved, may we also realize that what we choose to say, how we use our words, also serves as a reliable thermostat for controlling what's inside too. The book of Proverbs puts it this way, whoever guards her mouth and her tongue guards her soul from trouble. Beloved, our Father speaks to us with words of grace. Therefore, a life lived in worship to our Father is a life filled with gracious talk. Words have power. Watch your mouth and you see, you'll see your soul. Watch your mouth and you'll save your soul too. Amen.